0: Welcome to the third Frontline Gastroenterology podcast of 2015 related to the special endolive FG Twitter debate on Tuesday the 3rd of March 2015 entitled Frontline Endoscopy, Polypectomy, Tips, Tricks and Which Polyps to Remove Endoscopically. My name is Dr. Philip Smith, I'm the trainee editor of Frontline Gastroenterology and a gastroenterology registrar in London and I'm delighted to introduce Professor Brian Saunders consultant gastroenterologist at St. Mark's Hospital and adjunct professor of endoscopy at Imperial College. Professor Saunders is a consultant gastroenterologist and specialist endoscopist at St. Mark's, a tertiary referral centre for complex intestinal problems. He is chairman of gastroenterology at St. Mark's Hospital, director of bowel cancer screening for North West London and lead clinician for both the Wilson unit for endoscopy and the Kennedy Lee Academic Endoscopy Centre. He is a founding member of the British Society of Gastroenterology Endoscopy Research Committee and former Dean of the St Mark's Academic Institute. His research in- interests include all aspects of colonic practice and particularly practical aspects of polyp resection and bowel cancer prevention. He is the co-applicant in several major grants. Has published and greater than one hundred and fifty peer review articles, written multiple book chapters and is co editor of the book Practical Gastrointestinal Endoscopy. Over the last fifteen years he has demonstrated colonoscopy techniques and lectured at most of the major endoscopy and gastroenterology meetings throughout the world. Professor Saunders, thank you for doing this podcast to accompany your excellent Twitter debate, in which you've included a number of slides. A summary of the the Twitter debate will be made available on on the website alongside these slides and this podcast. During the Twitter debate, we focused on polypectomy and suggested tips and tricks when performing this, as well as how to identify which polyps to remove and which ones to tackle endoscopically. cross on this. During the Twitter debate, you described why should we do polypectomies and what we want from colonic polypectomies, and also the eight ways in which you make an endoscopic assessment of a polyp for our listeners could you describe these three areas briefly again
1: yes th- thank you philip there's there's a huge amount there um i think it's worth just just saying that the the reason that polypectomy is such an important topic uh now is that we we're seeing this unprecedented increase in demand for colonoscopy practice through uh screening driven by screening and increased symptom awareness so we're doing a lot more and en- more lower gastrointestinal endoscopy than we used to, and we're picking up more polyps. By picking up more polyps, of course, we've got the opportunity to intervene and prevent cancer, and the key to that is performing safe and complete polypectomy. We know that uh, our polypectomy practice is not as good as it perhaps could be uh, because we are seeing interval cancers occasionally occurring, um, which of which about 30% of these are related to incomplete or inadequate polypectomy. And studies have been performed looking at uh, residual polyp after polypectomy, and this is found in about 10% of all polypectomies, uh, increasing as polyps get bigger. We want to be radical, we want to uh, remove the polyp completely, and we want accurate histology to allow accurate staging for follow-up. But also, polypectomy needs to be quick, easy, and safe, and um, with the emphasis on safety. We want to minimize any risk of complications. And of course, the the, the, the excellent thing about endoscopic polypectomy is that that it's much cheaper and safer than traditional forms such as surgery. Now, when we see a polyp, it's really important to have an accurate uh, assessment of the lesion, and this involves initially a straight scope position onto the polyp, uh, washing and suctioning, orientating the polyp round to a five o'clock position. And then what I like to do is to, to go through a systematic approach. First of all, where is the polyp? Is the endoscopic access good? What is the morphology of the polyp according to the Paris classification? What is the approximate size of the polyp? is there any evidence to suggest that there might be some early cancer within the polyp? And we can determine this by looking at the surface structures. Is there disruption to the pit pattern or to the blood vessels? And in the Twitter debate, we briefly mentioned things such as uh, KUDO classification um, and uh, NBI, narrowband imaging, NICE classification. Is there evidence of tissue resistance with gentle palpation with the biopsy forceps. Is there a harder area within the polyp which might suggest malignancy? And then we can inject submucosally to see if the lesion lifts. If it doesn't lift, there is a risk that there's already deep submucosal invasion. Of course, that can occur in other situations if there's been previous uh, diathermy injury to the polyp or in certain types of polyp which have a natural Uh, fibrotic effect on the submucosa such as non-granular laterally spreading tumours. And then sometimes we'll also want to augment uh, our assessment with additional techniques such as endoscopic ultrasound, CT or MRI in selected cases.
0: Well, thank you very much. Uh, That was a great summary of those uh, fairly broad areas I was asking you to describe. Thank you. Um, You also uh, described really brilliantly during the Twitter debate how you particularly prepare for doing an EMR. And you described seven top tips during your Twitter debate. You also described which injection uh, solution you used. And also, most importantly, I think, for, for lots of gastroenterologists, how you manage complications associated with EMR. Do you think you could briefly expand upon these again now?
1: Yes, I mean EMR is now a, a common uh, procedure, and all therapeutic endoscopists need to be familiar with basic EMR. There is then a subgroup of um, advanced uh, polypectomy for very complex or large lesions where tertiary referral is indicated. I think it's important that people know what their limitations are in terms of performing polypectomy. But some basic tips which are applicable to simple lesions or advanced lesions are, first of all, in terms of the injection. um, We want to use the injection solution to manipulate the polyp into a, a better Uh, position visually so that it makes the rest of the procedure easier. And this is often achieved by injecting proximally to lift the polyp into the field of view. We also want to maximise the initial injection. Uh, Using multiple small injections is often a mistake. We want to inject uh, a large volume in one area to really maximise the submucosal lift. But then for a very large lesion we may want to inject in one area, lift that area, resect that area, and then inject another area. Because, of course, the the, tissue, the fluid in the submucosa will tend to dissipate after a period of time. So for a larger lesion, it's sometimes better to inject one area, resect that area, and then inject another area in a sequential way. Uh, there are different types of injection uh, fluid that can be used. The more viscous solutions, such as hyaluronate or 50% dextrose, are useful but are more difficult to inject simple saline or colloid such as gel are other alternatives and generally most endoscopists will color the injection solution with a small amount of either indigo carmine or methylene blue just a drop or two because that helps to define the submucosal plane and show the edge of the the lesion in detail. There's no limit to the amount the volume of uh, fluid that you can inject I can certainly inject getting on for 200 mils for some very large lesions over the course of a two two, two to three hour procedure. For smaller lesions again you want to make sure that you get an adequate lift all the way around the polyp. If it's a lesion up to about two to three centimeters often the optimal technique is just to use a single injection with a large volume. When it comes to cutting um, you want to make sure that you take some of the normal mucosa at the edge of the lesion to secure a lateral margin. That's really important um, and allows completeness uh, of excision to occur. Endoscopists quite often find it difficult to grasp sufficient amounts of the polyp, and this can be achieved by aspirating as you close the snare down onto the polyp and actually pushing, physically pushing by angling the tip of the scope down with the snare open hard onto the tissue to to catch adequate amounts of the polyp. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you may feel that you've caught too much tissue in the snare um, and in that case, the trick is to partially reopen the snare and allow the deeper tissue to slip away before again reclosing. Mm -hmm. This is something you very much get the feel for and this is why I always encourage my trainees to hold the snare and to do the final part of cutting when they're applying diathermy using their own hand to do that cutting not delegating that that task to the nurse if you feel there's too much tissue you must open the snare and allow some tissue to, to fall away i would also routinely mark the snare handle any snare that can be closed onto the mark is likely to have a safe amount of tissue within it if you're several millimeters short of the mark that you may have too much tissue so this is a good guide but with experience you learn to judge this by the feel uh, of tension on the snare. The single most important tip when actually doing the cutting and that's the point where there is the potential for injury or, or damage is that you should retract the captured snare piece back towards the center of the lumen so that you're slightly tenting away from the bowel wall. And then when you're cutting, make sure that you orientate the scope to be, and the snare to be parallel to the muscle layer in whatever orientation uh, or part of the polyp you happen to be at. If you cut at an angle of 90 degrees, you'll tend to tear tissue, and diathermy may be directed into the deeper submucosal layers or even onto the muscle. So being meticulous about that with each piece is very, very important. Finally, if the patient develops pain uh, at any time during applying diathermy, then you must stop because you may be irritating the serosal surface and be about to perforate. Always reposition the snare, recheck uh, that you've got a safe amount of tissue uh, before continuing. Mm -hmm. People talk about diathermy settings a lot. On one of the slides which are available, I've put my preferred diathermy settings. Um, It's best to keep things simple and reproducible and The key, again, is that that final bit of the cutting the endoscopist controls because it's the speed at which you cut through which matters actually more than the diathermy settings. In terms of complications, well, we want to keep those down to an absolute minimum, but occasionally there will be a complication and we briefly discussed what to do if there's a perforation. Most perforations at EMR should be relatively small and have the potential to be managed endoscopically. If it does occur, the first thing is to accept that it has occurred and take the necessary action, which is to try and clip the defect, um, pushing quite hard aspirating gas and trying to catch the the bowel wall to apply the clips. If there's a longer defect, you may need to start at one end and place a clip and then start at the opposite end and place a clip and gradually work towards the centre to fully close the defect. Afterwards, you may need to do a peritoneal decompression if there's gas in the peritoneal cavity causing a problem. And this can be done quite simply with a 50 mil syringe and a green needle placed across the abdomen to see bubbling of air coming back up into the syringe. Obviously, if there is a perforation, even if you've adequately closed it with clips, it must be very closely managed with surgical colleagues who are aware and a very close clinical eye needs to be kept on the patient with full antibiotic cover and intravenous fluid uh, as necessary. But as I think Matt Rutter mentioned, uh, 54% of perforations within the bowel cancer screening program could actually be managed successfully endoscopically. If the patient is deteriorating, then uh, surgical intervention with prior CT scanning is clearly indicated. There are some very good guidelines from the uh, ESGE which have recently been published in Endoscopy, um, outlining management of perforation throughout the GI
0: tract. During our Twitter debate, it was clear there was lots of professor of endoscopy involved, but there was also quite a lot of trainee gastroenterologists and endoscopists there. And you described some top tips and tricks of budding therapeutic endoscopists towards the end of the debate. Could you just briefly, in case somebody missed the Twitter debate, just explain some of these briefly now?
1: Yes, I mean it's it's always uh, an issue uh, getting uh, experience and learning the skills of the of therapeutic endoscopy because obviously the, th- these occasions are not occurring that often during routine endoscopy, and there is a lot at stake in terms of, of patient safety. The key is to learn to do really good quality diagnostic. Uh, colonoscopy using one-handed technique so that you can direct and manipulate the tip of the scope wherever you want to. What I always tell trainees to do is when when you're just in the rectum practice rotating to put fluid or put a polyp or put a any sort of marker within the the rectum down at 5 o'clock. You need to be able to rotate 360 degrees and target whatever lesion you want to. That is the fundamental first principle of being able to do any therapeutic endoscopy because if you try to do therapeutic endoscopy with the lesion in the wrong orientation, it won't work and you're, you're likely to cause a complication. So that is the first principle which you can do without ever putting your foot on the diathermy pedal. So getting good at doing diagnostic uh, colonoscopy and then gradually learning your skills, hopefully with a good mentor who's patient and um, allows you to progressively do more and more difficult lesions. What I tend to do is when we have a a complex polypectomy, I might let the trainee do the first part of the procedure or the first uh, injection or cut, or I might let them complete the final part of the cut. Obviously, you have a certain amount of time to do the the, the complex cases, so sometimes the practical issue is to do a small amount of it and learn it in stages, breaking down the different competencies. Another thing which is really important is when you see a lesion, what I will always do if there are people in the room, I'll say to them, right, what is our strategy? How are we going to remove this polyp? And we sequentially go through Assessing the polyp, what type of lesion it is, whether there's any risk of malignancy, is it endoscopically resectable, and then what the optimal endoscopic strategy should be. Because there's quite a lot of decision-making within these therapeutic cases, and that can be done without needing to have hands on the scope. Being competent at that is very important. Finally, I made a throwaway point, which I think is actually very important. Looking at videos and actually editing your boss's videos teaches you a lot because you'll, again, in slow motion, look at what's happened sequentially um, and understand why the different uh, maneuvers occur during the procedure. Ultimately, advanced polypectomy needs to be done on an apprenticeship basis, so getting yourself attached to a specialist endoscopist with an interest is important.
0: Well, thank you very much once again, Professor Saunders, for your fantastic contribution and support, both with the Twitter debate and this podcast. Uh, We're very grateful. Thank you. The slides from the Twitter debate will be available to look at next to the link for this podcast. The next FG Twitter debate uh, is with another consultant from St. Mark's, uh, Dr. Simon Gabe, who's a consultant gastroenterologist and intestinal failure expert. And that's on Tuesday, the 14th of April, 2015, at 8 or well, 9 p.m. GMT. And we'll discuss frontline nutrition and management of intestinal failure. We hope you can join us then using the hashtag FGDebate.